Do you wanna rub on Simba's tummy? Or think that Spider-Man looks extra yummy? The pain of childhood is super funny. On Did That Do It For Ya? Hello and welcome to another episode of That Do It For Ya podcast, the Sexual Awakenings podcast where we talk about the media that made us horny for the first time. I'm here with someone who has had a profound impact on my life. And I think uh, everywhere they go, they're just sowing seeds of impact. Um, I would like to welcome my guest, Nora Monaghan. Do you still use the last name Monaghan? I do. I do. I'm just dropping seeds of inspiration (laughs) wherever I go. (laughs) That was completely improvised in case you couldn't tell. I went to theater school. (laughs) Didn't we all? (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly. I don't know, a single motherfucker who didn't go to theater school. Hello, how are you? Hello, I'm doing very well. I'm very excited to talk about things that made me horny as a child. What a great uh, premise that I'm sure I will not be embarrassed about later. I have a friend who um, is famous and he he uh, is in a is in a popular video game. He did like the face and voice for a popular video game. I asked him if he wanted to be on the podcast, and he said no because he's too famous and he doesn't wow. want this information. <laughs> he's gonna hear wow. this and he's gonna be so mad. <laughs> Good. I hope so. I really love the art of the not name drop that you that you masterfully pulled off. Do you? My really famous friend who's too famous to be on this podcast. <laughs> hardly famous but he wouldn't he wouldn't let me run his twitter account either because he's he's too famous and i just say too many blasphemous dirty things is he in a star wars video game no all right then then you don't care right i don't care i have no idea who it is so so take that you're not famous to me (laughs) i don't don't care well i'll tell you once we're we'll offline about it later um but (laughs) Uh, do you remember uh, a certain voice teacher that we had who used to drop names? Oh, all the do time? I? Do I ever? <laughs> yes, yes. Who dropped names, invited students to come see shows, and then, uh, right now I'm like, how how can I tell this story without without naming the person? Uh, I don't and, think she listens. Right. Well, anyway. She was, we, uh, I went with my like two roommates at the time to see a show that she was coaching on. I love this And story. right. And we met uh, the late, great Alan Rickman Aww. and said that we were her students and he proceeded to fucking roast her. <laughs> it was incredible. And she was not there either. She, and, and also like, Yes, we went and we totally were willing to cash in on the fact that we were her students to this man. But also, we d- despised her. We were not, like, fans no. of this individual. So uh, to then have him roast her on our behalf, I mean, it was a gift. And then, like, he saw the, and, you know, Alan Rickman, sort of the famous understated and deadpan and dry wit um, and I don't think I've ever seen him grin so wide as he did when he realized how happy he had made us. Oh, what a treasured um, moment. Right. I remember, yeah, you telling that story is, I tell people that story. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm so glad. And um, fun fact is that my uh, my partner who uh, has been a guest on this podcast, the, the great Wiley Gorn, he... Um, 
he is like very heavily involved in like the voice world. He is a voice and text person. That's what he does. And in Linklater is his drug of choice. And he like will do these like warm ups over Zoom with the greater Linklater community. And she is often on oh, yeah. these voice on these oh, voice yeah. call warm ups. And I always ask, was she there? And he's like, yeah, she seems like a really nice lady. <laughs> I'm like, you don't know. <laughs> right. And totally, it's like, I, I think back and for me, I I just genuinely was not that kind of actor. I was not that and kind so of girl. It, it was for me, like, the best, it took me a year until I was with a different Linklater professor when finally I just asked one day, and we like really didn't get along either. And then finally I asked, I was like, what did they do before this? Like they must, you know, the, the Scottish woman did not invent the concept of projection and using your voice. Like, what did they do before that? And she actually took me very seriously and then like recommended these other books from earlier in the 20th century that were a lot more technical and mm. a lot less like we're going to mine you like and <sighs> hope to get you to have an anxiety attack. And that's just part <laughs> of the work. Um, right. Like, and it, and it, was totally transformative for me. Yes. So I don't I, I don't know if I can fully hold a grudge against my freshman year voice professor. No, no I'm no, willing no, no, no. to let it go. Uh, you know, it's well. been eleven years. I'll let it go. <laughs> I won't. No, that's not fair or true. Um I so I went to Ireland for um reasons and in Ireland they taught Fitzmorris instead of Linklater. Right. And I had a much, much, much easier time with Fitzmorris because I think it is more technical. It's less tapping into the imagination, which, as you know, any good theater artist, I just don't have. And I, it was very much like, do this. You'll feel this sensation physically. That's how you know you're supported. And so I had a great time tremoring my little, my little heart out in in Fitzmorris. And then I think meeting Wiley and having this relationship with someone who has such a, a profound love of Linklater helped me reach forgiveness with our freshman year voice teacher. I love that for you. I love that for Wiley. I love that for the American theater. Yes. Um, we've gotten way ahead of ourselves because I feel like I answered several of our questions. Where in the world are you currently? I'm in Brooklyn. Brooklyn, I, I New am, York. Yes, I'm in, in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. <gasps> I am I I am new to Crown Heights within my own lifetime, but I am like a quarter of a mile away from where my great grandparents lived. Oh where my god. The, where they got married. My family lived in Crown Heights um, for a long time, but then I was born in in southeast Brooklyn Marine oh Park gosh. so it does feel very lovely to be here I feel very like oh. connected I've, I've been in this apartment for like a month and a half and I I feel very much at home already that's beautiful and your bookshelf is so well organized might I well, might I, I add it is, it is like my it, it is my great addiction is that is like if I feel like I need a cigarette, I, I need to I need to like reorganize my bookshelf. <laughs> I uh, I relate to this. I recently quit nicotine myself, and I just haven't been a very good person since I've done that. And get some books. Get Move some, some books around. I am addicted to the written word. Um, <laughs> 
um, and instead of my vape pen, which I threw in the trash very unceremoniously one day after I started to feel nauseated. Good for you. <laughs> oh, Good so for hard. You. I have um, just a sick, broken brain, and I the I think cigarettes were very nice, and I think what I liked about cigarettes was actually just how fucking cool they made me look. And they do. And they do. And they let's do. not let's it's stop pretending. So hard. Right. They just do. Let's stop fucking pretending that cigarettes don't make you look cool. And I was also like, I was the baddie of the SOU theater department. I did right. drugs. Oh, I yeah. smoked cigarettes. I fucked. Like, let's <laughs> I was just the most dangerous person walking through the, the halls of that particular state school. And I would like <laughs> the way you just described it. I'm like, I'm, I was like, wow, was SOU a, a convent? And I didn't, I didn't realize. Uh, no, was, hey, no. You... I, so many people are gonna listen to this and be like, hey. But like, I love, I love SOU. But like, Oregon is very much like a weed smoking place, particularly right. smothern, smothern Oregon, um, where where SOU is located. Is it's it's you know people smoked a lot of weed. Cigarettes weren't super big. People didn't really smoke them. I, I and I think I looked. I thought I looked cool, but maybe I was just being. People were being like, "Ew." Um, and then I also I famously do a lot of cocaine. So, oh, wow. and, and no one wow. in the, and no and and I wouldn't say that the the, the students at SOU were particularly um, a part of that world. So I think I got a bit of a reputation after coming uh, coming back from from several wasted weekends just being like nose bloody just Oof. like uh, and everyone's like oh my god <laughs> right but you know were you wearing a leather jacket through yes. that entire time the entire so, time so no matter what it was you looked cool aurelia that's true but no I no matter like... what you were doing you know no matter how bloody and disheveled these wasted weekends left you if you still had if you came back with the leather jacket still on you looked cool. I looked cool. I would like smoke cigarettes before going to rehearsal for the Secret Garden, where I played the same role as our uh, teacher. Yes. Uh, yes, Alison Fraser, um, the one that she famously originated. She, yes. Martha. Martha. She she sent me the most beautiful message on opening night, because um, I told her I was like I'm playing the role that you originated, and she was so nice and, and kind about it. Um, She's a really wonderful lady. She's a treasure. I, I, I exchanged emails with her a couple of months ago because she's living in Brooklyn now too. And I, yeah, she is. She's lovely. She's so great. Well, that leads me to our, my next question. How did you and I meet each other? Oh, we met, we met at Fordham in college, which I, I don't know where Fordham falls on like in terms of your educational trajectory now. I yeah. call it, I call it college season one. Nice. Oh, totally. Right. Yeah. College season one. Then Ireland was college season two. And then uh, SOU was college season three. I, I appreciate that. I feel slightly miffed to have been written <laughs> off the show so early. But I, I, I'd love that for you. Thank I, you. and I, and I definitely loved all of our scenes together. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Well, this is, I, I asked this question as like secretly a way to get people to tell me their first impressions of me because I'm very curious and I want to know, but I can't just like ask that question. And so then I have it like recorded and. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> what were my first impressions of you? I mean, I, I 
feel like I always adored you. Oh. I, yeah, I, I can't, I definitely don't remember a time when that wasn't the case. And I don't, I don't necessarily even remember what was the first time we met. Partly because, like, at the beginning of every year, there's that, like, massive introduction in the theater meeting where everyone's introduced. And then they stand the freshmen up and they're like, Yes. The new meet. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember anything other than adoring you. I remember, um, feeling at the time also this was very much my way as you may remember i was i was the self-proclaimed mayor of everywhere i went i love that um and so i felt very like i don't know i hope that i sincerely hope this doesn't come across as patronizing but i felt like weirdly paternal towards you in in when we were at school together i like very very much wanted you to succeed and be happy and and like, I don't know, I was like, in, I was obviously in, it wanted that for you because you were my friend, but I also was like, really like rooting for you in a slightly avuncular way as well. <laughs> well, as someone who just didn't have a father growing up and who absolutely needed that, I sought it out in all of the worst and best places. Um, <laughs> that's so nice. Um, yeah, I remember you being the self-proclaimed mayor of everywhere you went. Um, and I think, God, that just like drew me to you instantly. I was, I was so from, I don't remember the exact moment that we met. I remember you standing up and being like, I wrote a play called Thank You 15. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, I just like, I really liked the way that you spoke. I thought that was very different than anything I'd heard in Southern Oregon. And I, yeah, we I kind of weaseled my way into your friend group. Um well, we were a our apartment was like notorious. Were, were we notorious? I <laughs> uh, see like we slightly positioned ourselves as like an island of misfit toys. You did. It was like, because because sort of going back to what we were talking about before, like you know, like any theater program, there is a ton of, of drugs and alcohol. And <laughs> and we sort of positioned ourselves as like being equally big personalities and equally disruptive, but we were not really like party people. We were just sort of loud. We loved were just it. sort of <laughs> loud it. mouths. And so we like really um, tr- like positioned ourselves as... as uh, particularly because we lived in a suite that, you know, th- those apartments in those dorms, like, were three-bedroom New York City apartments, like, on the Upper West Side. It was That's bananas. why I went right. there. Right, I went there because, like, like, nice dorms. Right, they were <laughs> stunning. Um, so there were six of us in that suite, and we sort of, like, I, I if I'm remembering correctly, we did sort of, like, position ourselves as the place for, for people to come to, um, when they were like tired of being at parties and stuff all the time, like, and like yeah. some people never came, and then <laughs> and then some people and then sometimes people did, and like then particularly after the like biggest most raucous nights of the year, <laughs> we we suddenly would find our apartment would be enormously crowded. Um, like there was the annual banquet and it would be like after banquet, like a lot of people came to sober up in 17 F. That was like a really lovely, lovely time. Here's what I remember about 17 F and sort of 
definitely why I found myself drawn to that particular corner of the dorms. Because um, my I had a very rough first year at Fordham University, as as people often do, um, and I won't kind of I won't really get into why I had a rough time or why I felt I had to transfer out of that school because it's dark and not fun podcast material. But I do remember that like by the time sophomore year rolled around, I was like I need to like find some a more stable friend group who I like who are like you know yeah just like loud but healthier yeah. about things yeah. I suppose and it was always I, I just remember 17f being such a safe space and I, I know that term gets thrown around a lot in various mocking and also reverent tones but it really truly was just like crawling into the crib and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> taking, yeah. taking a nap and, and just all of the various you guys always were like doing there was always something fun happening and it was always a very supportive environment and I really needed that at the time. And I think it made coming back to school in a particularly difficult time, just like a little bit easier. And so that is like my fondest, fondest memories of college season one were definitely all 17F related. Like, I don't remember if you remember the time that there was the hurricane on Halloween. Of course, Hurricane Sandy. Hurricane that, yeah. Sandy on Halloween, and we all yes. just we bobbed for, we apples bobbed for apples in the apartment, and right. we all dressed up, and it was so fun. Yes. It was there are, delightful. Yeah, there are glorious photos of you and I from that night. <laughs> yes, I should find <laughs> some and, and post yes, them on the socials. Bobbed for apples. Yes, yeah. um, and then I was in a play you wrote. Yeah, um, and I got I to was so glad pretend to get railed by by dear friend Brandon Zellman. Right, that's right. Yes, and when I had that. Oh God, <laughs> man, oh man, that that was really. I I love that play now. I, having gone through the experience of feeling like that was my biggest flop that I ever wrote, no. um, because the play I had written the year before was really well received, and I and I put a lot of pressure on myself to do something really ambitious. And um, what was before that? Was that front porch play? Yeah, it was front porch play. Was the one that like afterwards I felt like. I really, and also that was the year when I like just open was was declared open war on the administration, <laughs> and and you know was like very sort of like public about it, and so I felt a lot of pressure to have a, a really successful and ambitious follow up, and you know I was I was uh, derailed by the two page anal scene and and anal puns that that in my defense that my director my like you know they they hired and brought in an outside older experienced director and that was the first thing she said to me is that i could not cut any of the anal jokes and look like i love an anal joke as much as as the next queer person but uh like it really was not relevant to a play about about gender and politics it really um listen it queered the narrative um sure right (laughs) which was already very queer to begin with queering it queering the queer right none of us knew we were we were not none of us knew we were as gay as we were yet i know um, i had like famously gone like back in the closet (laughs) at fordham i like had 
I'd come out as bi in eighth grade because I was like falling in love with my best friends left and right and I like recognized something. And then it was like hard to be bisexual. And so then I was like, okay, never mind. <laughs> like scurried back into the closet. Wow, I didn't I didn't remember that. I I wasn't very bi at Fordham. I was like I mean that's that's the thing. Like I was out as bi already, but then I just found myself in this long term relationship where, you know, I was still identifying as a man and she was a woman and um Yeah. Ugh, it's pain. hard out. It's hard out there for for bisexuals. I I feel like, for, yes. I don't know. May, maybe maybe it's getting easier for the kids these days. Uh, maybe it seems, like, it seems like they are all having a fabulous time. I mean, it's I, I, they seem to be having a better time than we were. Right. I like recently led a workshop for a bunch of middle schoolers, and there were just so many they them pronouns and children who were just so like determined to present as very queer which I really loved and I was like oh my god this is like so much better than it was when I was you know in middle school and I'll never get over middle school I've built my entire career on the fact that I'll never get over middle school is like just such a traumatizing time and I cannot stand that the fashion that was popular when we were in middle school is like cutting back. I like I have serious problems. It's like I was like the worst experiences of my life happened in these clothes. What are you doing? So they don't have the trauma attached. It's all just you know how we feel about the '90s, I guess. But yeah, no, middle school was hard, and actually, the lack of like queerness and even just like lack of vocabulary, I felt like I had at the time led me to the Golden Girls. <gasps> nice transition! Thank you for being a friend Travel down the road and back again Your heart is true I did not uh, plan to have this be a segue, but it instantly popped into my mind as we were talking Improv about Improv theater school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So yeah, we are here to talk about your sexual awakening to the Golden Girls. Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting. I, I had, I had a really hard time choosing like identifying the piece of media um, because I, partly because I was a super sheltered kid Mm. And I went to Catholic school and then I was, then I became a child actor and I started my professional child acting career. And so suddenly it felt like going from like zero to 60 in terms of of exposure to like the concept of sex. (laughs) But because I was like in a, you know, exposed to to all of it in suddenly a professional context, (laughs) it was not like, you know, it, it it was not the same as like learning about it as a group with your peers mm. and like all of you having these hormonal feelings together. It was like, right. And so I, I was struggling with like what feels like the before times mm. for me, the like very earliest sexual awakening was just decidedly, you know, Natalie Portman in Attack of the Clones. Sure. 
when when <laughs> she gets scratched by an alien lion and suddenly her shirt turns into a crop top and it is like the crop top that launched a thousand puberties and that, that's gonna be the episode title <laughs> well that that's absolutely like what that was for for me was the first time that I ever was like oh my god like what is what am I feeling yeah um but I was still in Catholic school, and so I still, I still didn't know. No answers. No answers I, yeah, were given. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and then the Golden Girls, the thing that I love the most about the show is, like, look, if it's a sitcom from the 80s. Like, there are not, you know, explicit sex scenes. It's not like I was, like, coming of age in the, in the like, Game of Thrones era mm. where suddenly it's, like, really you know suddenly like sex and sexual violence are being presented to an audience at the same time in you know in this really complicated way mm. um the, but the golden girls you know there there's no like gr- graphic sex obviously <laughs> but there's really there's like consistent conversation about it and it's literally like the most famous scenes of the show are these like four women over the all over the age of 50 between the ages of like 50 and 80 sitting at a kitchen table eating cheesecake and talking about their sex lives and so that for me was like really that was where I learned about sex like truly oh wow it was certainly where like honestly you know, I was in, in when we were texting last night and when I was like sending you some links and episodes, yes. like then I, of course, fell down the rabbit hole and was like rewatching, you know, a bunch of it and fell asleep to it last night. Aww. And I, um, I learned, I genuinely learned about the pleasure component of sex from the Golden Girls. Like wow. that had truly never been introduced to me in Catholic school no. at all. Like we had just started to learn, started to learn about like sex and anatomy. And like the, it was obviously all strictly reproductive, pro- right? Yeah. Strictly reproductive. And even in that sense, still like, like something to be worried oh, about. We will, right. it that's, was like, that's a question that I'll ask you towards the end, we, we, but we right. will, we'll talk about your, your sex ed experience, but, but, um, the golden girls suddenly it's like, you know, these, these older women talking about sex and like sometimes talking about like kinky sex. And that was really fun for me. And, and oftentimes you know, obviously you look back on it now, it is still a sitcom that is a product of its time, which is the Reagan era. But <laughs> but it was like still a, you know, at the time, a, a progressive show for the Reagan era that got away with all of the sex in the show because it was about these old women, um, these older women. But, you know, for its time, it was also like fairly inclusive. Like it, it introduces the character of Blanche's like gay brother and who gets mm-hmm. married to, mm-hmm. to his, spe- you know, his partner over the course of the show. And yeah, is a lot of it like still played for laughs? Yes. Um, the, one of the episodes I sent you was about artificial insemination. I watched Blanche's that one this morning. Right. Wonderful. And so like, obviously, yeah, it's like dated and ultimately like they're sort of playing it for laughs, but, um, but it also like the undercurrent of the episode feels very, respectful to me that like it's sort of people who are not yet respectful or or 
aware of an idea, becoming aware of it. Um, and then also like in terms of disability representation as well, that then, you know, Blanche has this like great two like uh, re great relationships and like active sex lives with a man who's blind and with a man who's a wheelchair user and the way that like suddenly informed me was really like fortunately counter to the like sort of dominant popular culture which is like here is like an archetype of who the like sexy humans are that exist in society and they are the only ones who get to be sexualized in media and in culture and like everyone else is either just like gross or not doesn't have sex or a sex life and the golden girls absolutely introduced me to like the concept of sex also is like considering sex with like all all people and the sexualities of all people on earth and and that was really i'm so glad those ladies raised me in that way how profound i was so lucky yeah this, that is oh, okay i'm like i'm so 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 touched and like oh like i'm like i'm almost crying to like hear about you talk about it that way because yeah as i was i've watched very limited amount of Golden Girls. But as I was watching last night and this morning, um, yeah, I, that did kind of cross my mind about how, especially like in the Reagan era, um, there was this idea of who is sexy, who has sex, who fucks. Um, you know, advertising at the time very much bound up in, in sex cells and all of that. And how just transgressive of a show it was to be like these older women who and let's be honest i think in our western society we really like to toss out older women we revere youth so much right. and, and I, I saw a funny uh tweet about um because i don't know if you i don't know how online you are but um when 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 Gen Z started being like, oh, millennials wear skinny jeans and have side parts and that's stupid. Um, a bunch of um, very panicked millennial women wrote these like mean songs about Gen Z and were really like freaked out. Yeah. And then someone- I, are, yeah. are there any Gen Z listeners? Oh yeah. I, <laughs> I, I'm actually very popular with like the, the 18 to 22 year old crowd. Oh, that's great. I don't give a fuck what you think about me. You will take my skinny jeans from my cold dead thighs. And I also like, I, I did see, I'm not on Twitter, um, but I, right. I just don't, I just <laughs> can't. I've been on Twitter and deleted two accounts just because it is a hellscape it's for me. It's bad there. Right. But, um, you know, I'm on Instagram and I'm, and I'm like involved enough or, or aware enough online that I, I have seen the discourse on, <laughs> on side parts, middle parts, and skinny jeans. And um, I also found it so interesting, the like sudden, and, and I experienced it for a moment where it was like, oh, like, <laughs> I'm getting older, I have to like, stay current. And something that has like, 
you know, they all, they don't, I feel like they don't teach you because they <laughs> sexualize you when you're so young, particularly <sighs> if you are, you know, assigned female at birth. Yeah. Um, or if you're a femme presenting person, they sexualize you so young and basically teach you that like, that's the only time that you're going to be sexualized mm-hmm. uh that like you're and this you have to like hold on to it as long exactly. as you can exactly. otherwise you're worthless mm-hmm. i'm sorry we i i feel like uh, me and all of my friends and, and like lovers we we have all only gotten hotter we are all only <sighs> continuing to get hotter we're all so much hotter now than we were and you know so we're all like much. probably a lot a lot better at sex than we were too. Oh my god, I couldn't agree more. I just yeah, like basically what what the discourse was kind of saying was that like because in western culture we don't have like reverence for for like aging, like there's no there's no honor in aging in the way that a lot of other non-western cultures have. Um that so like the for 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 millennial women to realize that they aren't like young is like this very terrifying awful thing and it's about losing social status because women are only as as worthy as worthy of respect as they are worthy of being fucked in in the narrow very white cis kind of way that you can be desirable and yeah so like that what what golden girls was very much like these these rich inner lives of of people that society has like decidedly cast aside and like the value in these women like cannot be understated because like it it, it it's just not even today I don't really feel like I see a lot of stories about women of a certain age yeah i mean <laughs> and and that it treated all of them well, you know, it's the it's the four women. There's mm-hmm. there's Blanche, Rose, Dorothy, and then Dorothy's mother, who also lives with them, Sophia. <laughs> and they were like all treated, you know, equally. Like Blanche was the the sexy like, one, the yeah. sexy one, right? But like they all had relationships. Um, there, you know, and there's an episode where. Sophia, the older, you know, the like 80 year old mother, like where Sophia and Blanche are dating the same man. <laughs> like, th- you know, they did not like write off the like little old lady character. And, uh, and like also, you know, they all equally got some really dirty jokes. Yes. Oh my um, God. That was, yes. Sorry, not to, not to interrupt. Yeah. But like, that is something that I think, uh, talk, thinking about the episodes where we meet uh, the gay brother and um, the various kind of disabled lovers that we meet uh, throughout the series is that, yes, I agree that like it is played for laughs in a way that like feels not so great. But also I think because the show itself is so transgressive, it almost feels like we're smuggling in this like social message, like packaged as something else, which like you could, there's no way that you could talk about like gay people in the Reagan era, AIDS, all of these things. Right. And you like it felt like, there's a word for this. I'm having a hard time describing it, but it's like Shakespeare's fools, you know, where it's like, because they're able to be like, ha ha humor. They were also able to be like, and these people are like worthy of respect and love. And they are their Their way of life is like ultimately valid. And totally. Just fascinating, fascinating stuff. Yeah, definitely. The, the one like, 
place where it really just glaringly <laughs> fails is in terms of race. Oh, obviously, and, and yes. Racial diversity, and and that even when they have they bring in particularly black women into the storylines and into episodes, those are by far the cringiest mm-hmm. episodes that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so that a- apart from that. <laughs> Uh, it is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated because then one of the other like most beautiful episodes that they, one of, uh, that I think is one of the most beautiful episodes is when Sophia like starts not really dating, but like seeing this man like on the beach, on the park bench, like all the time and like that she starts falling for him and he's this older black man who then it turns out has alzheimer's and that like she doesn't she didn't realize for most of it that that's what he was dealing with but like it really um you're right and that the show does like often through humor and often through it's something that i think uh isn't really done anymore i i don't know if i what my opinion is on it on if this is a sign of progress or not but they they often do in situations like that put the main characters of the show as being like in the wrong yes and then by the end of the episode they've learned a lesson they've learned a lesson right mm-hmm. and like now i feel like there is such a um uh, a, a corporate self-consciousness in like network storytelling that you know everyone has to have like squeaky clean inoffensive opinions which you know wind up all being sort of offensive in how like neutered they are by any kind of real discourse uh-huh. but um, that's a, but that's I guess a rant for another podcast you can have that rant here, <laughs> but, but the golden but the Golden Girls does like it. It introduces and like in the artificial insemination episode that, that I sent you. Like yeah, like all of the characters, maybe except for Sophia, who is <laughs> so excited to go to a sperm bank. She's just um, right. Like definitely doesn't isn't clear about how a sperm bank works. And she has like my favorite line of that episode where she asks the the guy if like there's any Tony Bennett sperm like (laughs) just like tucked away and I'm like I don't know what do you think this is right exactly a library right exactly or or also like you know it's not like you get to have sex with Tony Bennett I don't know what you what do you think you're gonna do with that process to be um but uh but that like you know, even Dorothy, who she she has that line, Blanche has this line to Dorothy, where she's like, you're the, like, wise one, the sensible one, the worldly one. Like, what do you think? And Dorothy's like, ew. ew. Yeah. But then by the, by end, the end, they've, like, learned. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah, I have such a hard time um, with the discourse. And I should really just get off Twitter, but I can't. If I can't have cigarettes, I will have Twitter. Um <laughs> And it's hard to I say which one is more toxic for me. I really don't know. Yeah, it's true. Um, but, and I, I don't know if you were on Tumblr. Um, no, see, I just, like, generationally, I, like, just, just missed, it. missed the Tumblr thing where that was just after, like, I was there for the birth of Facebook. Oh. And I was there for MySpace. Woo, shout out to MySpace. Right? Shout out to MySpace. Tom, my friend 
you know, Tom, my, 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 number my one. most loyal friend. Um, and then Facebook, but then like Tumblr, I, I missed. Also um, a bad place. Yeah, that's too bad. I mean, um, I don't know. I think it had, it was definitely the place where I saw like the best gay porn. What? Yeah. See, my only exposure to Tumblr was when I ran the Fordham Theater Tumblr. That was you? (laughs) Look, it was my lab hours requirement, okay? So I got to do that from the comfort of my bed rather than... Go to Tim Zay's little office. Right, rather than be forced to to build sets. Lab hours was one of the reasons I left Fordham. Oh God. I mean, now I, it's so funny. Like the things, you know, I just absolutely hated it at the time. I hated it. And now, and now I'm like, I wish I knew how to hang a light. <laughs> uh, oh, or I'm just sort of like, I, I sort of fucking love power tools now. Mm, and, and like, right. Yeah. And so I, and, and so now I'm kind of like, oh yeah, I, I kind of wish I had spent more time hanging out in the scene shop and in college. Yeah, I had a good time in the costume shop, but, like, the thing is, is, like, I've learned how to use a sewing machine, I think, at least five separate times in my life, and it's never stuck. Like, I've, I I couldn't do it, even though I technically know how to do it. Um, so I'm guessing that that's just not a skill I meant to have. Um, but I would really love to know how to hang a light. Um, I, I feel like I'm just... Um, I get a little gender dysphoria around um, the things that I, I, the physical things I can't do in, in theater. I mean, definitely like when you, as soon as you said that, of course, like that you've been taught to use a sewing machine like five times in your life. I'm like, right. Of course I have. <laughs> hashtag. Yeah. Hashtag something. I don't hashtag know something. Hashtag I mean, is. just any, right. any situation. Because I'm not on Twitter. Because you're not on Twitter. You don't know what the hashtags are. I don't know. I just, any, any situation where I'm unhappy, it's, it's gender dysphoria. That's not true. Um, there are like, I, I made a tweet recently, um, not to plug my own Twitter at nonbinary Butler, but, um, <laughs> I, I love that name. Thank you. I, I genuinely so I have to I had to go take my my car in on the on the west coast there's a um a line of of I guess it's like a tire shop but they do other things um it's called Les Schwab um Les Schwab please sponsor this podcast (laughs) (laughs) um wonderful people very they never rip you off it's always like they do like free brake checks and things like that always very it's it's you can always like find one off of any exit off of i5 um and they're just wonderful but i do every time i go in there all of a sudden i just go i become the most cis feminine little thing that ever walked into any room i'm just like oh i don't know anything about my car <laughs> will the big strong totally. man help me with my tires <laughs> i baby voice comes out it's terrible and then i leave and i feel sick to my stomach and it's Les schwab love you love your services but i just get the worst gender dysphoria in that place <laughs> it Speaking of gender dysphoria, Golden Girls, <laughs> the Golden Girls. I, I, um, one of the, you know, I, I had a hard time articulating when I was realizing I was trans. I had a hard time discerning it and articulating it to 
my family sure because you know the the like dominant narrative is you know i was born in the wrong body and i knew from a very young age that this was not who i was supposed to be and i and i always felt and that like that wasn't me but interestingly so it was like when i was a kid i was i strongly identified with like stories about young boys i i like you know totally was like harry potter totally saw myself in like you know, it was like Peter and Chronicles of Narnia, all that shit. Um, actually, no, I think I saw myself as Edmund. Little fucking the, rat who right, sells right, out exactly. his family for a piece of Turkish delight. Okay. Oh, okay. See, so Turkish delight, you see it as I'm like sold out his family for fucking the white, for the white witch. Mm, um, I see, who I, see, I, I see. I, Another sexual love. awakening of yours? Uh, honestly, yes. And, and it was like, a double sexual awakening because then when they made the movie with Tilda, Tilda Swinton, Swinton. Yeah. I was I was like it felt like the sexual awakening was confirmed. <laughs> I was like right. I was like I was right. I was right. This I was right all along. Super hot like androgynous witch. Like correct. Yeah. Um, but and and like sort of actually along that exact line like I identified with young male characters or or middle aged women. That's it. Across the board. There's your gender. Like, <laughs> no, but like actually, like and and I sort of again in terms of being a sheltered kid, like I just I didn't fully appreciate that by virtue of growing up, I was going to grow up and be expected to be like a man. I I just I didn't I didn't fully get that. Mm. And so I strongly identified with the Golden Girls as like who I wanted to be when I grew up. Yeah. Um, and that was really helpful too. In ter- you know, th- like in terms of my, my sexuality, I learned a lot, but like also in terms of my gender, I think that I definitely identify as a golden girl. <sighs> and that's, yes. that's sort of it. Yes. Oh, I adore that. I see that for you. Yeah, because like it was so funny that you said you had a hard time like deciding a topic because as soon as you said golden girls i was like well of course like that makes total sense that is your gender i just think about you at fordham playing your piano and your beautiful i I always called them soprano tones i know that's probably not what they were but like you've always been an old lady yeah um it's true and it's one of my favorite things about you is that you you're just an old dame at heart and i I love that that's your gender and I see that for you. And I really am glad that this was the topic that you decided to bring in and talk about. Me too. And it, and it's complicated. So like the, the other two things that I was torn between were Star Wars. Of course. Attack of the Clones. I thought it might and, be that. Right. I know <laughs> that, that was definitely uh, one I was torn about, but like I said, I didn't, I still didn't know what I was feeling right. when, I, when I saw that. And then the other one is the graduate, um, ah. which right now the graduate basically it was like, I I watched the Golden Girls. I like learned about what I knew about sex from the Golden Girls. But then I didn't personally have like, uh, I I was still young enough that like I didn't really have an awareness of like my own sexual desire. Sure. Um, and then I saw The Graduate, uh. and I was like, oh, it's milfs. <laughs> um, I was like, oh, <laughs> um, it's very clearly. And Bancroft. Yes. Um, but, like, again, sort of, like, interestingly, so I, like, crafted, I, I, I sort of, like, 
built my sexual identity around the graduate when I was like still young, when I was like still identifying as male right, as well. Right, 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 right. Until, until I realized, and you know, it was, I was like 23 and I was just infatuated with this uh, actress I was working with at this theater company who was in her late 30s. And we had this really, it, it was a, a, it got to be a very unhealthy sort of like codependent and flirtatious relationship where we both had partners and we both sort of knew that it was not, uh, like it, it wasn't really right the way we were like talking to each other and the level to which we were engaging. But, um, but then I, being the younger party, I like got serious about it where I was like, oh, like we're going to end up being together. And obviously she was like, no, that's not the case. And so then I was devastated. Um, but also that was part of what sort of broke open for me, how uncomfortable I was with the like assumption of maleness mm -hmm. that not only were other people putting on me, but more importantly that I was putting on myself mm -hmm. that, that I saw the graduate. And at that time I was still laboring under the impression that I was supposed to identify with Dustin Hoffman. And now I've reached the moment in my life where I'm like, no, 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 I get to be Mrs. Robinson. Yes. Um, and, and same with the golden girls too, yeah. where it's like, I I have always been like an old dame at heart and <laughs> now that I'm like n not just doing that for like camp but sort of like mm -hmm. f feeling comfortable in that in like who I am identity wise I also see thanks to the golden girls like right and that's like also hot yeah right I can also I can be like an old lady at heart and be also be super sexy yes um, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think this is something that we hear a lot. I, I, I have, I have more queer friends than straight friends, and since this is a podcast primarily where I interview my friends, um, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, there's this kind of recurring theme that comes up with queer people in their sexual awakenings, where it's very muddled and confused because you can't tell if you want to be that person or if you want to be with that person. Um, and tell I, me about it. I know, and I think the the beautiful thing about queerness is that it actually gets to be both. Where I feel like, and this mm. is me, this is me generalizing quite a bit, but I think in straight culture, in like patriarchal straight culture, you kind of have to loathe what you desire. And there's, you know, men reserve their romantic love, respect, and admiration for other men. So it's very homoromantic in that way. But they, the, there's the sexual desire for women. And so, anything that is the same as them, it cannot be desired the same way. Whereas queerness is like, it's the, it's the meeting of, it's the, it's not either or, it's the meeting of the desire to both be and to, um, and to not, possess is not the word I'm looking for, but it's the desire to enjoy, to engage with, to have sex with, as well yeah. as um, be yourself. Um, and I l love that. I love everything you just said. Thank you. Um, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like sitting with it. Sit with it. Take a minute. And I see that with you in the Golden Girls. Is that like it get with queerness? You get to be both. It's not one or the other. 
you wanted to be the Golden Girls, so you became the Golden Girls, and you sexually desire the Golden Girls, and that's okay. I think that's why so many gay people date people who look like them. Interesting. <laughs> or narcissism. Yikes. I don't know. Right. But... I know. Um, I definitely, I mean, I definitely prefer that explanation, though. I, I mean, it definitely is. Uh, obviously, I, I, you know, all communities have. Uh, have problems all cultures have problems and and it's totally valid to seek to be introspective and and call those out and dig down to what ways are uh, unhealthy that you're behaving because of those things but also the sort of like i'm sort of over the like sorry i thought my car alarm was going off but i think it's not mine go on oh i'm glad (laughs) i'm glad it's not yours please continue your thought um i feel like uh, I'm sort of over the, like, gay people are narcissists. I hate that. Line. I'm, I'm, I'm really over it. And I, I feel like I've heard it a lot from, uh, from other queer people. I feel like that's mostly where I've, I've heard it. And, and again, like introspection and, and being critical of, of a community that you're a part of, I think is, is super important. Um, but I do also think that any sort of argument like that is ultimately also deeply reductive. It is. And I much prefer what you were just talking about and am really, like, touched by it. The mm. idea of, yeah, like, there is... That it's okay, because you're so right in terms of the way that in, like, a, a straight culture and and heteronormative paradigm it is necessarily the opposite of this where it's like you, you are not really allowed to like emulate the thing that you are attracted to. You're not allowed. As opposed to in queerness where like you totally can, you can. And that's like so beautiful. Yes. Yes. And that so often, yeah, I feel like the people I've, I've been most attracted to in my life are people who I admire and want to be more like. Yes. Um, at least in the healthier relationships. Yeah. I, I mean, my type in women is, like, unfortunately, like, mean. But I think that's, like, and, like, I don't know. Like, when I, because I'm not a woman, but, like, when I'm, like, identifying the femininity that I wish I could step into and possess, it is someone who's assertive it's someone who like could step on a neck and because I feel like in my femininity those were aspects I was so uncomfortable inhabiting and that I I I just like I couldn't like I I wanted to so badly but as much as I tried it's like I couldn't do that so like when I see a woman or a feminine person embodying those traits I'm just like oh my god like I want to have sex with you I want to be you as close as I can get to this thing that I admire so much like get me 100 percent, 100 percent same first of all and and it for me too is like I I always have been a, a fairly assertive person by nature a fairly dominant person by nature and um I, I reached the point where like I realized I was super uncomfortable with that being necessarily tied to a concept of masculinity yeah. and that like actually the I what I where I felt like power and assertiveness lived in me was like through embodiment of of femininity yes of, and it's yeah yeah it's so interesting because then when I think about like the the masculine like 
men or like masculine people that I'm attracted to, they don't possess that quality at all. Like I'm attracted to like mean, ballsy, like assertive, ballsy is not even the word, sorry, gendered, bleh. So like mean, assertive, bitchy women. And I really like gentle, like very like respectful, tender little men. And I, I don't know if that's because my sexual awakening was the hobbits and Lord of the Rings, but <laughs> I've talked about this on the podcast before. Yes. But yes. like I, I, it really is just like the opposite ends of those spectrums. I really what I what I love and strive for in 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 femininity is like the exact opposite in masculinity, and I've never really thought about that before until this moment, and I will have to grapple with that a little bit. But yeah, <laughs> I'm really turned off by like assertive men, but love an assertive woman. Oh my god, same. <laughs> I feel, I hope I'm not uh, bringing the, like, tone of the podcast down from a, I feel like I've not picked, I've not been very funny in how I've talked That's not true. My childhood That's not true. No, 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 no. This is exactly the, where the tone has to live. We, we, we banter and have fun at the beginning. It gets, like, serious and deep, and then it gets lighthearted again at the end. Okay, good. <laughs> I want, um, these are the places I want desperately to go. So I have one brief Golden Girls IRL story. Go on. Is when I so when I was thirteen, oh God, actually the context of this is like so bleak. I, um, do, anyway, do, Eric, uh, <laughs> I was I was thirteen, and my like childhood sweetheart, who like we were child actors together, and we you know dated and, and do I'm do, putting that in air quotes. <laughs> um, but we mostly just we were two child actors so we like socialized together constantly mm -hmm. um but i had just closed a, a show a production that i was in and i think we if i'm remembering it correctly i think that we closed on a matinee on like a, a saturday or sunday matinee and that oh right we closed on a sunday matinee and then that night uh, she and her mother took me to this huge benefit at the Gershwin Theater for Hurricane Katrina. Oh. Right. So, right. So, super bleak. But, right, because it was a Sunday night, so there weren't any other shows that night. So, they did this huge benefit, and it was hosted by Liza Minnelli and and Ben Vereen. Oh, my God. has his, his own problems uh, that have come out in the past couple years. But... Um, Rue McClanahan at the time who plays who plays Blanche in the Golden Girls was playing Madame Morrible in Wicked ah! and yes and she was in the benefit she didn't perform but she came out and introduced one of the acts I am keep in mind I am 13 years old yes. I am sitting though I'm sitting in like front row mezzanine at the Gershwin at this benefit Rue McClanahan enters, and I, 13 years old, start a standing ovation <laughs> for Rue McClanahan when she enters. <laughs> and she did this. I mean, this is also what I love about Rue McClanahan is, like, she did, she sort of was Blanche. Yeah. Like, she just... She was before, and then, like, especially after the Golden Girls ended, she was that persona the rest of her life. Amazing. So she 
like did her intro speech for whoever performed next like in her blanche dry you know weird her southern accent so right this like totally phony sensual (laughs) southern voice um and she said i'm trying to i i don't i'm definitely not going to get it verbatim but it was like the standing ovation for her not even to be performing the standing ovation for her upon entering to introduce someone. And she said something about like, I would like to thank my many lovers for that wonderful standing ovation. And so that was it. I was like, I, I feel at age 13, I was like, I have slept with Rue McClanahan. And, and there's this line in the Golden Girls where they, where Blanche and Rose start a, um, an, unauth- an unauthorized Elvis Presley fan club. And when they're arguing over who's going to be president and when Blanche says like, I slept with Elvis Presley in a motel in Chattanooga and Rose being the dumb one believes her. And then afterwards, Dorothy says like, you did not. And she goes, she's like, well, there were a lot of Southern boys named Elvis. And, you know, one time at a motel in Chattanooga, I shouted out Elvis's name, and I think that counts. <laughs> that's you. Right. And so that's sort of how I feel now, where, like, I never, I actually haven't really been, I've never had, like, fantasies about or been attracted to the actual Golden Girls. I've, I've really counted myself as one of them. Yes. But, but after that, when, when Rue McClanahan thanked her former lovers for the standing ovation that I started for her. Yes. I do feel like I'm like, I think that counts. that counts that I, I'll give that one to you. You can have that one. <laughs> Incredible. We're, okay. Uh, we're going to, we're heading into the wrap up questions. Um, my first of the wrap up questions is which of the golden girls are you? I, I, I am. Um, I think I'm Dorothy, which is B Arthur. Um, I really treat that question, which I've been asked many times in I my bet. life, like a zodiac. <laughs> I think question. I get it. Right. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, I am a Dorothy Sun, mm-hmm. a Blanche Moon, yeah. and a Sophia Rising, and the Incredible. only one who, who, the the one who I love the most, I think, is Rose. Mm-hmm. But I, but I, you're really not. Don't Rose. have a. I don't really have a lot of Rose in me. I really no. like. I I love. Like, I love people who are Rose-like. Mm-hmm. I love them in my life, but I don't have that personally. I completely agree. I love it. I'm going to answer in the same way. Please. Um, I think I'm a Sophia Sun. <laughs> I think that I'm a Blanche Moon and a Rose Rising. <laughs> oh, I love all of that. I don't think I have any I Dorothy. So this is super interesting, because, like, speaking of astrology, um, this is a queer podcast. Um, right. I don't have, I have very, very little earth in my chart. Like almost none. Um, but I have a, a crazy amount of fire and um, a bit of water and a lot of, a lot of wind, um, air rather. And um, I think that Dorothy is so earth. Like, she is such totally. an earth element. And I, I couldn't, like, I, I'd have to give it more thought. This is all, like, off the dome at the moment. Um, I just think, I, I say I'm Sophia's son because I think she's the most Jewish out of all of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I totally see that. I mean, she's she's old Italian lady from Brooklyn. And that's a very, I mean, all, I think all old women 
from Brooklyn are, are a little Jewish. Are a little Jewish. I completely agree. I think it's a very, I mean, you said Crown Heights and I was like, mm, the Jews. Like, right. <laughs> yes, I know. We're, we're all over. We've got all the flags out for, for Mashiach. He's, he's coming back. He's coming back. Um, one of my favorite lines in all of literature, you know, I love the written word, as I've said. Um, oh, I'll talk to you about this later. Eric, cut that. Um, <laughs> that's an offline thing. Because um, I, I realized I was talking to an Irish person. But um, it is from... Is it, is it Ulysses? No, it's from A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Oh. I want to adapt that so badly. I know there are adaptations of it, but there's not my adaptation of it. So, so true. Yeah. We should collaborate on that. We'll offline. I think that'd be beautiful. I want to direct one of your plays. Um, anyway, so then my next question is, uh, you grew up in Catholic school in a Catholic environment. Uh, did you have the talk and or nope. you did not have the talk, but what your sexual education experience was... Right. Next to nothing. Next Virtually to nothing. nothing. Virtually nothing. I, I, I had no talk. I got no real... I had I had one talk with my dad that was the closest to the talk, but it was... Honestly, but it was so much worse because <laughs> because he didn't initiate it because I was like... You I, the, the, this My talk was, Dad, okay, there are some words that I've heard backstage that I don't know what they mean. Can you please tell me what is fellatio? <laughs> Right. Father. That, right. Right. I'm like, okay. And I, and I knew that it was not going to be like a comfortable experience for either of us. You knew it was somebody. Right. I was like, what is fellatio? How old were and you? And that was like, the, uh, I think I was uh, 11 or 12. Wow. Around then. Yeah. Uh -huh. I Like I said, I was super sheltered. Uh-huh. And this was also like early days of the internet. So I know a lot of people who for whom 12, they're like, right, yeah, 12. I was like, I was watching porn. porn. Yeah. Right, exactly. I I was very much not. Um, and yeah, so there was that. And then, you know, sex ed for me was, I genuinely, it, it was obviously abstinence only all procreative based <sighs> and so like i just i thought that a vagina was just like literally like a like gaping hole <laughs> that's a i genuinely i like when i like pictured it like at that age oh. like it was like it was like darkness <laughs> it was like a circle of darkness because that's how honestly because like that's how it was on like diagrams that we were oh, allowed no, to be shown. It was like oh no it was like shadowed out so that we could right exactly and so i <laughs> genuine right and so like at that point what part of that seems like there's pleasure involved i i was you're like, falling into the void right exactly it was like and then there's this abyss and the, and then like this this tool you use for peeing that is like more often than not you just find like in the way like that is the thing that you just throw into the abyss until a baby until a baby happens throw it right in. like right i'm like what so my sex ed experience was enormously underwhelming it was. Uh, it doesn't was, sound underwhelming. Right. <laughs> it sounds it was, wildly fantastical, if somewhat inaccurate. <laughs> right, if, if somewhat inaccurate. Uh, and so that's it. Like truly, uh, the Golden Girls is where I learned it all from. Oh, God bless. And and oh, and one of the there's a scene. I don't remember which in which episode it is that I said. I think it's the the accurate conception one, 
But there's the scene where they're talking about it and and the thing that Blanche says, oh, right, it is that episode. And Blanche says, like, no, and no fun trying. And then they all talk about, like, the fun they had and the, like, sort of kinky ways that they conceived their children. Yeah. And I, and so that was the very first time that it was introduced as a concept to me that, like, there's fun to be had. That that it fucking feels good. It should be fun. Right. Um, And that they laugh about it, too. That's another thing. I feel like a lot of, like, the, you know, being a teenager, and there's, like, a lot of culture that, like, sex has to be, like, super sexy all the time. And, like... I felt like with the Golden Girls, there was also the humor about it that, like, I, you know, it's also, like, a way that we as adults continue to play. Yes! And so, like, it's also genuinely fun and, like, funny and playful and, like, yeah, like, th- that also can be really hot. And, like, but it's not, it doesn't have to be the, like, soap opera like smolder deep voice it's not all gossip girl right (laughs) right you know and so like the golden girls also also taught me that i remember something i think i was like 19 when i said this my like grand pronouncement on sex that i had had learned by 19 but that now i i look back i'm like oh wow i think that like that's really beautiful i was like i just sort of feel like if i'm if we're not like laughing like when we're having sex or or like around the time when we're having sex like I feel like we're sort of doing it wrong and I love that that's beautiful and and I feel like that was also like instilled in me by the golden girl so yeah that fully supplanted the horrendous lack of sex education that I got in catholic school and and by the time I got to public school when I was in middle school and high school I feel like most of the focus on then, uh, then was on STDs. Yeah, yeah. And so it was like I had already missed the part. There was where no fun, like, right? No, fun. I already missed that. It's, it's and so I, right? <laughs> it's terrifying. It's sexy, right. scary. <laughs> and you know, I had we still. I, I made my own fun I, when I was in middle school. When I was in middle school and had to, and we had to do a project on like we were put in groups and had to do projects explaining different STDs, Uh um, which also terrifying, but, um, (laughs) my group, I had us write a song and we did our, cause our group was gonorrhea and we sang Mamma Mia and, and I wrote lyrics about gonorrhea. Do you have this somewhere? You know what? I probably do. (gasps) I actually, in, in, in moving, when I just moved two months ago, I actually like ported all of my old computers that were at my parents house and all these old like fucking floppy disks that i like transferred into the cloud so i finally have (gasps) everything i've ever ever written oh my god i'll have to look it up and see if If you can find it i would love to hear it okay my battery is about to die and i don't have it i don't have my charger with me because i'm at fucking work but um that's incredible um do you have anything you would like to promote I, I want to continue to promote you, Aurelia Grusin, and and continue to, to hype you and Juvenalia Collective and, and everything that you're doing. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Well, you are now a, an integral part of the Juvenalia Collective. So to hype up me is to hype up you. So that's how this Very whole thing works. Uh, my last question before we stop recording 
is uh did that do it for you oh yeah oh yeah it really did oh yes you know i don't think anyone's ever said no so i don't know why i keep asking that question but it's nice uh, I, it's nice I to think hear it's, it's very helpful to to hear people's tones yes as they say that. i like the i like positive feedback only so i'm gonna oh, do very yeah. well in grad school no doubt <laughs> well that did it for me hope that did it for you. Thank you so much for listening. That Do It For Ya is hosted and created by Leo Grierson, edited and produced by Leo Grierson and Eric Solis, theme songed by Eric Solis, and visual design is by Benny Kessler. Follow us on social media at That Do It For Ya, wherever you social your media. That Do It For Ya is a proud arm of the Juvenalia Collective. To find out more about the collective and what we do, you can head over to thejuveniliacollective.com. And if you want to support the show, you can head over to patreon.com slash thatdoitforyapod to join our horny little community.